Welcome to Come and Reason with Christian psychiatrist and author Dr. Tim Jennings. Together we will reason through complex issues to find evidence-based answers that harmonize scripture, science, and our life experiences. I'm your Come and Reason host, Charles Mills. We all feel down in the dumps sometimes, you know, melancholy, overwhelmed, depressed. Not to worry, we can just pop a pill and we're on top of the world again, right? Well, not so fast. Dr. Jennings, who joins us by Skype today, suggests that we should exercise caution when self-medicating depression. Why is that, Dr. Jennings? Okay, so I'm really glad how you started that with by self-medicating. Yes. Self-medicating means that you're taking it into your own hands to take things that you can find over the counter or otherwise to try to elevate your mood. The most common things when you use those terms in a psychiatric or medical practice, people self-medicate typically with illegal substances or alcohol. Mm -hmm. So they're not feeling good, so they'll drink or they'll smoke marijuana or they'll take amphetamines like cocaine or methamphetamine or something to try to elevate the mood. Uh, doing that with those types of substances is always harmful and always worsens brain function and worsens the overall health of the person. And so whatever the person's struggling with does not get better gets worse. So self-medication is really not the approach. Does it work? I mean, do you feel better when you take this stuff? Well, so that's a great question. Illegal substances, people take them because they actually cause them to feel something, mm -hmm. an altered state, a euphoria, a buzz, or a high. But the substances used are damaging to the brain and undermine health and worsen overall functionality. Okay. All right. So if we take something that's actually bad for us, it's going to make the problem worse, even though it temporarily makes us feel better. Is that the message you're trying to say here? That is correct. Right. And the faulty decision-making is that people are looking to change how they feel rather than treat the problem to get well. So hmm. imagine you had a cavity. And what's the best approach to go to the dentist, get it drilled and filled, which may not feel good while that's going on, yes. or take a high dose of an opiate pain medicine that will cause you to feel better transiently but fixes nothing. Many people approach emotional problems by simply trying to get something to make them feel something differently without actually addressing what's causing them to not feel well in the first place. And typically when you address a problem to resolve it, there can be a time where you actually feel worse. Now, you make a living helping people identify what is making them feel bad. Let's just start with some generalities here. What is it usually in your patients uh, across the board, an average person, what is usually making them feel the way they're feeling? Let's just start there. Depression, panic, anxiety, eating issues. Um, I mean, there's so many different categories of, of how a person's feeling bad, uh -huh. and they have different reasons for that. So if it, we're talking you know, today about depression, so what contributes to people feeling depression? There are a whole host of reasons why people can have depression, uh, from physiological ones to relationship ones to, to belief system ones to life circumstance ones to genetic vulnerability ones. There's lots and lots of reasons. That's why it's important not to treat yourself, but to go to a professional who can help you assess the underlying problems and identify the contributing factors. I think one of the problems in modern psychiatry, however, and I think some of the concerns our listeners may have, is that to a great degree, there's been a trend in modern psychiatry the last 20, 25, 30 years 
towards just prescribing medications and no longer looking for the contributing factors. And, uh, and that has to do with third-party payer systems reimbursing doctors to prescribe meds and not compensating doctors to actually spend some quality time talking to the patient, getting to know them, and looking for those underlying variables. And therefore, I think people have some concerns that maybe they don't want to just jump onto a medicine first thing. They want to look for those factors and variables. Okay, so what I'm hearing you say then is that we need to be open to the fact that there's something causing this. It might be a emotional change in what we feel, mm. but you're actually slowing the wellness process by self-medicating with these substances. You're actually making digging the hole deeper, making your condition worse. What percentage of people, just ballpark here, need professional help or need to just get with it and figure this out on their own. What percentage of us are capable of figuring out what's wrong with us without having to go see someone like you? And what percentage of us need to go see someone like you? I think the, the general rule is that most people, including doctors, are bad treaters of themselves. Okay. So the rule is that you don't diagnose and treat yourself. Right, you get yeah. an objective other party yeah. to diagnose and treat you. Of course, you're talking about a severe case or a case that's debilitating, right? You're not talking about just your normal blues that you have from time to time. If your function is not impaired, mm. then you don't meet criteria for a mental health disorder. All mental health disorders have as one of the criteria that the symptoms are severe enough that your normal level of functioning is diminished in some way. So if you're not diminished in function, you're just feeling down, but all levels of functioning other than the way you feel are not impaired, yeah. then that is not a mental health disorder. All right. Okay. Very good. So what are, what are the steps? How do we begin this process? When someone comes to see you, how do you begin the process of searching for the cause of the problems? So it's always diagnosis is a first. If your diagnoses are wrong, then treatments are wrong. Mm. So the first step is always a thorough assessment of the history of the person, the symptoms, the contributing factors, the things they've already tried or not tried. You want to get a real good history to understand what it is you're actually dealing with. And then once you diagnose, say, depression, you want a good history to understand the contributing factors. Are there nutritional deficiencies? Are there substance use abuses going on? Are there uh, marriage conflicts going on? Uh, are there healthy thought patterns going on. You want to identify the contributing factors and intervene on those. Okay. When you identify the, the factors, how do you begin treatment? What's the first step? Well, the first step is to target every one of the contributing factors for that person. And okay. people come with different constellations of factors. Some people might need vitamin supplementation. Some people might th need thyroid treatment. Some people might need CPAP for sleep apnea treatment. Some people might need marriage counseling. Others may need antidepressant medications, or uh, they may need combinations of all of them. And therein lies the value of seeing someone like you. You know what works and what doesn't work in those areas and what needs to be applied to a particular problem. Am I right in saying that? That's exactly what a psychiatrist yeah. is trained to do, yeah. to be able to help differentiate and uh, help formulate with the patient a plan that's helpful for that unique situation. When a patient is confronted with these things that you suggest, whether it be the CPAP or whether it be the, the drugs or whether it be uh, cognitive therapy or wh whatever it happens to be, what do you find is standing in their way of, of going ahead and doing it? You'd think everybody would just be willing to do this. I want to do it. I want to turn around. Let's, let's go. But you're finding that doesn't happen. 
most people are very willing to take physical health treatment. So if they know they're hypothyroid, yeah. they're willing to have their thyroid treatment or sleep disorder, they're willing to get their sleep disorder treated. Yeah. People are often reluctant to get uh, depression treated directly because they feel there's myths out there that depression is just an issue of character or willpower or spiritual health or faith, rather than realizing that major depression is actually a physical illness that affects their brain, that affects their immune system, affects their entire body, and that to treat it, we, we treat the person holistically. So if they did not have the stressors in their life, if they did not have the death in the family or the relationship in problems, or if they didn't lose their job, or if they didn't have this great sorrow that they're carrying around, they would still be depressed because it's a disease, right? So yes, what you described would not really fit into depression. Somebody who's sad after the loss of a loved one and, and, and heartbreaking grief, that's grief. Grief is not depression. Uh -huh. uh, sadness after the loss of a job and heartache over that, that's an adjustment issue. Even if you can't work because you're so upset for a few days, that's not depression. Depression is a, a medical illness. Okay, if you go five years down the road, 10 years down the road, and that loss of relationship is still making them sad and depressed, if that loss of a loved one is still making them sad and depressed. Are we then into depression? Yes. So these other things you're describing, and it's not five or 10 years down the road, it's much less than that, can develop a depression, and these can be stressors that lead people to depression, but people have to have certain vulnerabilities to get depressed. Not everybody who loses a loved one gets depressed. Some people do, other people don't, but most people who have any type of a tender heart will grieve and feel sad and cry and have days where they don't sleep well and don't eat well, but some will not enter into a depression, others will, and that has to do with genetic vulnerabilities and how we process and handle stressors. Okay, because I want to make it clear in my mind here that you say depression is a disease, it's a condition, and it's not necessarily tied into other conditions that happen in your life. Do these other conditions like anger and, and frustration and whatnot over events in the life, do these exacerbate the depression or do they cause the depression? They don't cause the depression because it's a disease. So what's happening when people are depressed is that there's typically imbalance of brain circuits where they have overactive stress circuits, they have underactive reasoning circuits, underactive pleasure circuits, and their stress circuits activate their immune system, kicking up inflammation, which causes changes in cells in the brain and, and you lose proteins to keep your neurons healthy and you actually get shrinkage in certain brain regions. And so this is what's happening. So anything that increases inflammation in the body, whether it's an unhealthy diet with a lot of fast food and junk food, people eat fast food and junk food have a 40% higher rate of depression than people who don't, whether it's a chronic worry, anxiety, stress that you can't resolve, so you're activating your brain stress circuit, telling your immune system to kick up increasing inflammation, that can also drive depression. So these are all variables in there, but it's not something so simple as, well, I had a stressor, so I got depressed. Okay, now I'm, under, I'm beginning to understand it. It's like epigenetics, only it's, it's events in life that are the, the triggers for these things. A depressed person is depressed because they have the disease called depression, and they can go through life and not be super troubled by it unless these triggers come along and cause the depression to rear its ugly head and become worse than it was before. Am I right in saying that? 
So people who've had depression, once they've had two episodes of depression, even if they've been treated to remission, if they've had two severe episodes, the likelihood of a third episode is 70%. Really? If they've had wow. three episodes of depression, the likelihood of another episode is 90%. Yeah. With each episode of depression, we're actually altering gene expression in our brain, putting little methyl tags on certain important genes that will lock those genes down if we remove the treatment that we're on that's keeping us well. All right. Very good. Dr. Jennings, let's conclude the program here in the next two minutes. You call this program antidepressant. So give me what an antidepressant is and how we can find it. An antidepressant is a medication that is used to treat depression. Currently, all antidepressants require a prescription from a doctor. Uh -huh. And antidepressants work by affecting the machinery in your brain cells that transport brain chemicals, neurotransmitters. And by affecting that transportation of neurotransmitters, that causes uh, like dominoes to fall. You kick over one domino, causes the next domino to fall. Affecting those, those uh, transmitters causes within the cells second messengers that go all the way down into the nucleus where your DNA is and epigenetically turns on genes that were turned off during depression, reversing the functions of the cells, the proteins, and restoring the brain back to a healthier state of functioning. That's the general mechanistic way that antidepressants work. And these antidepressants are the ones that you prescribe, not the ones you find off the shelf someplace, right? There are no antidepressants on the shelf okay. that somebody can buy. There are none. Zero. Zero antidepressants. They all require prescriptions. The problem is that antidepressants, even in the best circumstances, only work in about one-third of patients. Two-thirds mm -hmm. of patients antidepressant won't work in, and that's because th this is a very complex illness with many variables, and if you're not treating the other contributing factors and just throwing a medication at it, you often won't get the person well. And so it really requires antidepressant in conjunction with additional other interventions to help restore balance. All right. That makes it clear right there. Perfect. Dr. Tim Jennings, our guest today. Comeandreason.com is the website, listener. Check it out. Lots of good resources there. Dr. Jennings' books, his podcasts, and his television programs. Lots of good things to see and to learn there at comeandreason.com. Dr. Jennings, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Appreciate it. You bet. And listener, until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Dr. Tim Jennings wishing you God's presence in your life. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for spending time with us today. To continue the journey, I urge you to visit comeandreason.com. Here you'll find many excellent resources to help you gain a deeper understanding of the God we all love and serve. That's at comeandreason.com. This is Charles Mills, along with Dr. Tim Jennings, inviting you to join us the next time we come and reason together. <music>